Hey gang, it's Christian here, and it's July 8th, 2016, and I'm just about to hit publish on this episode. And I gotta tell you, I debated delaying this one quite a bit because it's been a really bad and tragic week. So should we delay this one, maybe get Seth Stoughton back on or another expert to talk about policing issues and to try to work through the tragedy? And, you know, I I think it's never been our style or our role to kind of jump right into a debate like that. And um, I don't know if it's wanting to take a more measured approach or if it's just, you know, we got to take our own time to get our head head around uh, our heads around what's happened. So, you know, I know in times like this, I sometimes like listening to goofy podcasts and they just, you know, it makes me feel a little bit better. And so maybe that's true of some of you too. So this was recorded with the wonderful Sonia West uh, here at World Argument headquarters, where we kind of go through our mailbag and and talk about a lot of stuff, some goofy, some serious. And I just hope wherever you are with all this and whatever your experience of this week has been, uh, that this gives you some amount of pleasure. Anyway, uh, we're going to take the week off next week. We'll be back soon. Love you all. I'll play the, the listener with questions, but I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. Episode 104. Really? Yeah. Is that true? Yeah, you, you interrupted. I'm trying to drop in. I think from now on, we should put a marker at the front. You oh, know, this, something is, that... this is brand new thinking <laughs> that well, I'm hearing. Well, it's brand new nonsense. It's not actual thinking. We're not actually going to do that. Oh, you're but not going to do that? I, we could do something, the, the equivalent of like uh, using like a label maker on the show, the I, oral equivalent of a, of a label maker. I interrupted the, the place where you're going to drop in a bumper, a music bumper. <laughs> uh, seriously, is it episode 104? I think so. I mean, wow. it says 104 on the little thing I'm looking at. So. That is incredible. Yeah. Pretty cool, huh? We have a great uh, in-studio guest today. Nope, not guest. That's wrong. We have an in-studio co-host. <laughs> That's right. Who's, yeah. Who's been with us so many times. I think you are, other than the two of us, I think you were the most frequently appearing. This is my fourth. Person. Fourth. Wow. So and I was on episode one. One. Yeah. So, yeah. She, yeah. She will always have that. So yes. we basically have to stop after today. I mean, this is a perfect bookend. Either that or you have to agree you're going to come back yeah, at some point. Yeah, just don't let anybody, yeah, jump me. I like so to the, think that Sonia West, of course, is a co-host of the show. And we've recorded, I don't know how many, and I look back and I realize, oh my God, we forgot to have Sonia on these past, like, 20, <laughs> it's been in like, 20 episodes. It's like... I'm the laziest maybe we, co-host we, in the history You really are. You really are slacking. <laughs> like, we forgot to call you. I'm not sure what happened, but and anyway. Since, since I put guests, I think it's my fault, but... So today we promised to get to some feedback. We're going to get to some feedback. Maybe we'll talk about some random stuff. Definitely. Well, be... we always do that. I mean, you can count on us for random if nothing else. That's, <laughs> that's, we're reliably random. You know, I, 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 the very first thing I should do is give a shout out to listener Fisher, mm. who gave us some feedback um, the last time we did one of these feedback roundup sort of things. I feel okay. like we should have like a, like, a, like a lasso sound effect for feedback roundup. <laughs> <laughs> At the roundup. A little, little jingle. <laughs> Uh, and, and I actually saw a listener Fisher out and about, I won't disclose in what context or how, or anything. It may have been, there may have been ramen involved, but you anyway, were do, I saw, you were doing a bank job. I, saw, <laughs> I, and my mind was so frazzled. I didn't put two and two together that we just read his feedback. Cause I, you know, the episode come out a little bit after we did the mm. thing. So I just want to give a shout out to, uh, one of my favorite listeners and thanks for your feedback and keep on ramening. Okay. Is there anything else to do in this episode? <laughs> Look, you're in the driver's seat, literally and figuratively and in any other way in which a person could be in the driver's seat. 
Uh, no more feedback on episode listening speeds. I think this is a crucial issue I want to encourage people to, to weigh in on. You know, how fast do you listen back in your podcast app to the show? Okay, and listeners, while you're ignoring that invitation, which I would urge you to do, uh, <laughs> I, I want to highlight that our speed trap law expertise was recently oh. grazed, although not invoked, in the most recent Judge John Hodgman podcast, and they were clearing the docket. Do you listen to the Judge John no. Hodgman podcast? Oh, you must start listening to it. He is an he's very uh, funny, but also wise, a real humanist. Mm-hmm. Um, we have where his where's his jurisprudence, uh, Christian? Where's the poster? Oh, it's it's right over there. You know. Okay, we'll show right. that to you later. Yeah, I, nothing, I got this as a gift yeah. for Christian, but the, the yeah. and I have a, a matching copy at my house. Um, I know he does. He makes the judgments. Yes, right. I know that. Yes, yes, <laughs> and he's awesome. He, he's a judge who does judgy judge, things. He does. He, does. he judges there the, with the judging and the judgments. He judges the, the junk out of that stuff. <laughs> um, so he 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 has. Uh, they have these episodes where they quote clear the docket. So instead of having guests who talk about their dispute, they just have the bailiff uh, Jesse Thorne a read. little bit like this show. A little bit yeah. like our mm-hmm. feedback episodes. Right. You know? So, yeah. um, and I'm the bailiff. And so, uh, anyway, so Jesse Thorne <laughs> reads this, reads this, uh, I didn't even catch that. Yeah. Description. And, and so they start talking about, well, there's an actual dispute. There's an there actual was a dispute, dispute about, uh, should you use your should headlights you... to signal someone in the passing lane on the highway who's in front of you, but not driving quickly enough to allow passing behavior? Mm-hmm. Should you use your headlights to let that person know, I am here and would like to pass you? And they'd gotten some feedback from someone who did that and was like followed off the highway and the person was very angry. And so, uh, but, but at the, it was at the because end initially, of that discussion. Initially in an earlier episode, Hodgman had ruled, the Judge Hodgman, Lord Chancellor Hodgman had ruled that it was perfectly okay to flash your lights politely to indicate, I would like to pass. Mm-hmm. But then, then comes a letter to this Clearing the Docket episode that something harrowing had happened to someone who had done that. Who had done that? Yeah. Oh, really? It, it involved, so then he reversed his judgment. It involved fingers. You oh. know, uh, it involved people chasing each other. It involved. Uh, it, it was, can, it was I, bad. can I friendly amendment? Involve fingers and not in a good way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, so he, he says at the end of that, uh, he starts talking about flashing your headlights to indicate to people that there is a policeman ahead mm-hmm. who's doing uh, speed. Monitoring. And what was his um, judgment about this? This was an exception to the general rule, was it not, Joe? Yes, I think so. I think he said that this was a, an excellent custom. I forget how he phrased it. I don't have it in front of me. But uh, we will link it up in the show. Um, I tweeted it out from the oral argument tweet thing. I just think it's important for them to know. I think it's important for Jesse Thorne, the bailiff, to know. I think it's important for Judge Nahajman to know. That if they ever want to consult anyone on speed trap law, we really are the world's really leading the expert. podcast. We are the leading podcast authority <laughs> on speed trap law. That's right. I think that's yeah. right. They should uh, come to the source. Yeah. I mean, yeah. wouldn't, is that what you want to do? You'd want to go to the best, you'd go to the best resource. Right. We are the only podcast that, ha- that features a host who has done empirical research into flashing of the lights yes the visibility of lights in daytime i've done that in garage in a garage i've done empirical work on this oh this is the only no it was qualitative it wasn't quantitative it was qualitative this is the only empirical study we've ever done for the show and it was (laughs) yeah it was and joe determined what you know you went and you can see light can you see light light during the day you can see yes Mm -hmm. yeah which is an ironic i suppose thing that i needed to test but in any event um yeah imagine a world where you couldn't see any lights during the day it'd be very strange yeah Hmm. be pretty weird so that that's something people should check out 
Yes. what you're saying. That, that particular episode. While they're ignoring your imprecation that they should let us know about listening speeds, which couldn't be more trivial. I'm, I'm a 1.8 to 2x person. Which is crazy. Yeah. Do you, do you listen, when you listen to podcasts, Sonia, do you listen at, a, at an enhanced speed? I do. I, I use, was it Overcast? And mm-hmm. we have the setting where they both, the, the spaces are Smart shortened. Speed. Yeah. yeah. And then it's, I don't know, point, one point something, I forget. But. How far over do you go? Like halfway between or more than halfway or twice? Where do you go? I don't know. Oh, boy. It's faster. It's Sorry. Fa- it's faster. It's, it's faster. faster. But not crazy something fast. something that just sort of popped up. I said, this is good. Never, not, never rethought it again. It's not, yeah. yeah, it's not wildly fast. I have People different sound settings. Like they, Christian excited. listens to yes. it. Yeah, in a, yeah, Christian listens to it at a speed that would cause anxiety attacks in most people. <laughs> I think a lot of people, you know, we've got a bunch of Team 2Xers here in, on Twitter. And it, you get used to it. I have to say, when to, and I, we I can't this see before. their tweets anymore because they, they're now moving at a, at, a, at a they're moving at a speed that is beyond our dimension and beyond our perception. Right. <laughs> so we can't see their tweets anymore. When you listen to Supreme Court oral arguments at two x, a lot of them sound just normal, and you do get used to it. And then when you slow it down to one x, you're like, oh my god, would you people hurry up? This is like <laughs> this, this sounds like the dumbest tribunal right like, in the entire land that one could imagine when you slow it down. It gives you confidence that maybe you could jump in and start, you know, you could, yeah. even in between the pauses, you could add relevant points. Yeah. So interesting. Anyway, just a little, that's a little pro tip, a little life tap tip, life tap, life hack, life hack. pro hack, little hack tack. So there we go. <laughs> um, we got a, we got a tweet from the faculty lounge blog. I'm not sure if this is this Al Brophy, I think, is the person who writing the. Is the that tweets. right? I think so. Okay. I think that's what I deduced. I, I, I would like the faculty lounge blog tweeter to identify him or herself. OK. Uh, and if it is said, Al, we'd love to have you on the show, Al. If it's anyone else. No. <laughs> <laughs> there are a bunch of people on the faculty lounge who have been there's, on our show. Yeah, I was just kidding. There's Kim, I mean, there's Al. There, yeah, 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 they're all welcome. Yeah, they're all welcome. We're this lame. tweet was remember when I asked why anyone talks about the 18th century constitution. Did you see this one? I and did. This is, this is one entry in the, uh, the breakfast round table, the breakfast table, Supreme court breakfast table on slate. Right. Where, uh, Posner, Dolly Lithwick, um, I think, yeah, Mark Joseph Stern. Yeah. Right. And Don Posner. Johnson. They do this every, every year. Walter Dellinger. Walter Dellinger. During, we should call, there should be a name kind of like shark week for the, <laughs> for the week or, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's right. crying out for branding. But it's more than a week, right? I mean, it's it's a couple weeks. Yeah, when you're not yeah. quite sure how the, the rate at which they're gonna the opinions are gonna happen, and you could sort of tell the end, but it's still a surprise a little bit, right? And they add days. Yeah, yeah, so that's why it's a little hard to. Yeah, it's like maybe the depot. It's like the end of the line, clearly, mm. right? Yeah. So you need something with that bottom of the ninth. You know, some of the you know I don't like these sports analogies. It's the opinion but, dump depot. I yeah. agree. In in soccer, it'd be extra time. Okay. Yeah, at a time. Yeah. Yeah, you never, and you're never quite sure when it's going to end. Mm, right. right. Um, that makes it a very good analogy. Okay, so we're going to come back to this. I want to come back to this breakfast uh, round table, breakfast table, Supreme Court thing a little bit later. You have thoughts on that, Sonia? Have you been keeping up with this? Yeah, I love it. It's, yeah, it's uh, great. It's always great every year. Yeah. And, and, and this year was really all over the place. Judge Posner has yeah. kind of poked a stick at us, hasn't he? Yes. You really- <laughs> he did. I think he, Yeah. I like sticks. it. I love it. I love it. A I metal it. skewer. There's like a metal barbecue skewer. The faculty lounge blog tweeter is referring to Posner's critique about reliance on constitutional study as being at all relevant to right. uh, the resolution of constitutional issues. Let's come. We're going to put a pin in that and come back to it. Yes. To use the biz speak. Yes. yes. Put a pin in that one. Put it in the parking lot. As put they a say. pin in it. 
And and we got a tweet also from at MX Bondo on Twitter, mm-hmm. who said, just listen to oral argument on Orlando and glad I'm not alone thinking manufacturer strict liability is an answer. So it was just kind of chiming in. Yeah. Saying, you know. This and it was a, your, your, your alternative, uh, your, your creative alternative for gun maker liability. It's not quite strict liability product manufacturing. It's sort of a different. It's strict liability to a government fund. So it's yeah. a liability in the broader sense of liability. It's not so it's, strict tort liability. I, I described it. Um, I think I described it in a Facebook conversation we had with someone about this. It's sort of like a, a blend of worker compensation and product liability. Although even there, worker compensation, you do make the payment to the injured worker. Right. So it's not that either. I mean, no, it's hard the, to describe. The entire goal is to create a source of liability that will be insured. Right. You're trying to create an yeah. insurable liability that causes, you know, behavioral effects to kind of ripple through the system. Yes. To get the manufacturers to internalize the externalities. Yes. Melanie speak. Yes. Yeah. He doesn't like that word. Okay. The oh, word externality, um, which so I encourage you to say it again so, and again. Yes, externality. It's not that I don't like it. It's externality. It, 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 oh, boy. This is that's going to once you start singing the externality that was to the song, tune of High Anxiety, the great Mel Brooks song. Was it now? Yeah. Do you remember that movie, High Anxiety? I this remember the movie. I don't movie? remember the song. Yeah. I only remember one phrase, High Anxiety. That's sort of the chorus of the song. But you can say externality, and it's the same. Can you sing it as something from Hamilton? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. I don't have nearly the skill or the what, talent. What rhymes with externality? I have the admiration, but not the talent. Hamilton's the best. Yeah. Uh, oh, right. no. No, 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 no. <laughs> Uh, I, we're not going to have this conversation, are we? After all the drecky upstream color nonsense I've put up with you from the, the last few you, years. You mean when you, the movie you've never watched? Correct. Mm-hmm. I've had to listen to you drivel on about it. How many times have I driveled on about it? A lot. <laughs> I'm sure whole minutes have gone by in my life where I was listening to that junk. I can't believe you're going to try to compare Hamilton to Upstream Color. But... I can't either. It's a great insult to Hamilton that I do that. But <laughs> This movie you've never seen. Yes, mm-hmm. correct. Interesting analytic frame that you have to... <laughs> Let's go... <laughs> Before we come to blows over this. Yes. Should we go on? Yes. So listener Ian writes in, and this is something... Here's, here's where we're going to bring in Sonia, I think, to, mm. get, um, to, to get some additional data points. Because okay. as you know, I think as we've already established... About, I don't know, an hour and a half ago in the show. Yeah. Uh, this is a show about gathering empirical data to prove <laughs> the truth of various assertions, right? So, listener Ian writes, I use the big box store's price match policy to get Amazon prices in store. Target, Best Buy, and other stores will match Amazon.com prices on all sorts of items as long as Amazon's a seller. I use it for Blu-ray movies all the time. I'm sure it works on larger items. Hmm. So, this is a, a comment about the morality quiz that you took. The other yes. week. From? The Derek Muller morality Derek Muller. quiz. Yeah. Mm. And so remind us, Joe, what was that quiz and what did you say? The quiz was about do I, com- do I use, while I'm out shopping, do I look at a price on Amazon to find out if it's lower and buy from Amazon instead? And I answered the question. Is, was that the yeah, question? Yeah, this is, and this was meant to root out, well, I don't know what, it, I mean, I'm not saying what Derek meant to do, but. It, it, it seems intended to, to root out your inconsistency and your 
railing although, against using students as means in the journals. It's not an inconsistency at all. I, I, look, I don't, I don't as disagree. I explained, yeah. um, because comparison shopping is something lots of people do. And in a market context, of course, that is not only what many people do, it's what many people expect many people to do. I think that's the point. Um, Expediting is something many people do. It's what people and, expect. And it is what, right. And, and, and they, and they do that uh, because they're all under uh, the, <laughs> Here it comes. the mistaken belief that it is a market, um, strictly speaking, in the way that going to, you know, Target or um, Lowe's or something yeah. like that. Um, and, and that's emphatically not the case. It's an educational enterprise set up for educational purposes overseen by educators for, you know. Right. Uh, so your disagreement with the very, the very setup was not at the level of transactional morality. It was about the kind of morality of the system in general, right? The morality of the, the system which allows you to go in and compare prices. The system of, of you know, information coming into markets is one thing. The system of student law reviews and students choosing based on certain information and giving information, that's a completely different thing. And those have very different purposes. Yeah. And I'm trying to point out to, to use a metaphor from literature, I'm trying to point out the awkwardness of having the money changer booths right on the front porch of the temple. It's not where they belong. Right. Right. The, it's a category mistake. Wasn't that in a book? It wasn't a great okay. book. <laughs> so, uh, so, Sonia, so you're going to have to take the morality quiz now. I bet you didn't expect that when you right. agreed to come on I today. sort of lost the tangent between yeah. the Amazon and the law review. Yeah, uh, maybe I need to listen we'll need to, to it again a, at faster I, speed. I'll have to, <laughs> that will not help. <laughs> I'm going to have to cut this part out because it implies that Sonia is not completely up to date I'm with every one of our date, episodes. Yeah. 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 I, she hasn't implied it. She's flat out stated <laughs> it. We need to leave it in because <laughs> we're about the truth. We're about the empirics. <laughs> this is this is her tagline. Sonia West is not only a co-host, she's also not a listener. I'm also a lazy co-host and lazy listener. Um, uh, so, so Sonia, consistent. this is the question. So, so when you go into a store, to a big box store or somewhere else, mm-hmm. and you're thinking about making a purchase... Would you feel at all bad? Do you have any uh, moral qualms? Do you stop for a minute to think about whether you should pull out your phone and check to see what the price of that item is on, say, a big online retailer? I will feel bad if I feel like the the you know brick and mortar store was giving me something that Amazon couldn't. So maybe I wanted to see how this thing felt in my hands, or I wanted to try the clothes on, and you know whatever, get a look at the thing, and then order it from Amazon. So they have provided me something that the store has that mm-hmm. Amazon couldn't, and then it seems wrong, um, and that will give me pause. I don't know if it doesn't mean I wouldn't always do it, it depends on, but it gives, there, pause, it gives me but, pause but, but i will stop. say sometimes it works the other way <laughs> yeah. which is sometimes i'm in the store trying to decide between two things and i will pull out my phone and look them up on amazon and read the reviews that mm-hmm. amazon has gathered for me and yeah. provided for me that target or whoever has not and then i go ahead and buy a target oh so the free the writing it works both ways so that's how so i morally justify it is yeah. sometimes amazon wins sometimes <laughs> amazon loses and uh i get you know Right. We talked the about the very same things last time this came up. We, when we were talking about comparison shopping, we mentioned the idea that uh, one reason why um, some manufacturers want their resellers to price uh, at a certain point and not below is because they want they want stores to feel that they can if effectively provide additional services like information, mm-hmm. like the ability to try something on, like the, you know, comparing online versus not. Um, and that's, you know, you're 
so it's 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 great that when you are thinking about it, you're thinking, yeah, this is these st- stores are in different situations. They have different affordances. Like one can help me experience it personally. One can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that should mean something. It does mean something. Right. Right. It does. And it depends on the product. So if of you course. go to Best Buy and you get to look at the TVs and look at the picture and whatever, right. and then you order it online, then you really have kind of taken advantage. But if it's, a, you know, a DVD that's in a box and sealed up. Right. It doesn't seem like there's much. And to it. make a Kantian point, you've not you've not only taken advantage, but you've done it in a way that if everyone did that, eventually there wouldn't be a store where right. you could go see the TV picture. Because why would why Which would people why bother investing? Brick and mortar in? bookstores are having the problem because people go in and they browse and they pick right. up the cover and they read a few whatever and they decide something and then they order it from Amazon for right. cheaper. So yeah. Well, we took a deep dive into this on the Students' as Means episode. I'm going to link that one up. We did. Down below. You can tell Christian's now impatient. I mean, yes. he administers the morality quiz, and then to show <laughs> his own depravity, he kind of skips off to the next topic <laughs> and just glowers at us as we explore in a genuine I was and heartfelt next, and humanist uh, way the, uh, yeah. the thoughts we're having do about you know, it. Do you know what I was actually so thinking? So bravo, Do you Christian. know what I was actually thinking? I'm looking at the next bit of feedback, and I'm, I'm thinking I have a lot to add, but I think I said everything that I wanted to say on that earlier show, and... And I don't want to subject the listeners to my thoughts twice. Well, I certainly agree with that. <laughs> I can heartily endorse that. Because <laughs> I can't remember, right? You see, this is the problem. Oh, okay. Yeah. Don't worry about inconsistencies. <laughs> <laughs> they make things fun, right? You, did you see this from listener Russell about citations? I did. So I, I think on an earlier show, hypothesis. I don't yeah. remember which show it was. You mentioned the, the different practices of citation and judicial opinions and, and law review articles. Um, yeah. The blue book has kind of two tracks of, of right. rules. Because I think you posited that that one of the one of the contributing factors to the crazy behavior in law reviews on footnotes and stuff was we built this elaborate machinery. Uh, I guess we need to use it, and so that I think right. your theory was sort of an informal theory of of sort of the the creation of the blue book. And all of its complexity was becoming an argument for its own use. Not, not necessarily an argument, but a kind of a, a guarantee. Like we right? built it, it's a conf- why not use it? You have to master it. It's not, it's not even that you're thinking like we should use it because we, it, it's that you've, you've mastered this complex system and now everything, you know, it's like if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Once you've mastered this complex system, it, it feels like you've learned something really valuable. It, 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 it and so feels, as you're using it in the, in the moment and saying, hey, add more right. footnotes and here's what they would be like. And blah, 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 blah. Why, why else would I have invested so much time into learning this right. complex system if it's not supposed to be used all the time? Right. And I made yeah. the point that judges live under the blue book as well, but judicial opinions do not look like law review articles in this regard. Isn't it interesting that when there's that different constraining element of you know, a judge and a decision to make, it doesn't happen, even though the office is staffed by, among other people, these law students who probably were very recently law review editors. Mm-hmm. Um, well, here's where Russell, so Russell says, chimes in with a very interesting. He says idea. one thought on the discussion of the relative citation density of law review articles and judicial opinions, and whether that's related to the citation system itself. I think a key structural difference between the two types of documents is that law reviews overwhelmingly use footnotes for citations, while judicial opinions and briefs tend to use inline citations. That's not technically prescribed by the Blue Book, although it does note quasi-descriptively that, quote, in non-academic legal documents such as recent opinions, citations generally appear within the text of the document 
immediately following the propositions they support. Footnotes should only be used in non-academic legal documents when permitted or required by local court rules. And then he says, at least intuitively, it seems to me that footnotes reduce the cost, and he puts that in quotes, and increase the output of citations, in that an opinion or brief with law review style citation density and inline citations would be virtually impossible to read. I wonder whether there's a similar correlation in other disciplines with different citation practices. Query then whether reducing the complexity of citations would increase the likelihood that they could be placed in line, and then further reduce the number of citations. A virtuous cycle, perhaps, at least until you reach the point of just hyperlinking everything, at which point the number of citations no longer really affects readability. Um, I think it raises a great question, um, and and it's an interesting idea. And I think uh, we are uniquely, again, focusing on empirics, (laughs) we're uniquely able to explore it with a former clerk for Justice Stevens. Yeah, I was going to say that the, the, the Supreme Court, the justices do it differently and based mm-hmm. on their, their desire. And so some of them put citations and footnotes. Some of them put them in the text. Some do a split uh, where they put the most pressing, you know, most important citations in the text and then drop footnotes for things that are a little more tangential. Um, um, I'm trying to think. It's Justice Kennedy, I think, who doesn't put any in the text. I know there's one justice who really hates how it, it messes it up. The, who hated or footnotes? maybe it's Breyer. Who doesn't um, put any... Um, any citations in the text? They in all the go text, in footnotes. I got it backwards, then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I thought I know one of them has come out and said I don't um, like them in the text, which I actually have to agree with. I think it really is, makes it harder to read. I mean, the first thing I'm doing, we've all probably excerpted cases to to give to our students, sure, uh, to read. And the very first thing I do, and sometimes this is all you need, and then you realize, oh, this is not a very long opinion. This is fine. Is to cut out all of the inline citations. I cut out, you know, almost all the citations to cases. Period. Unless it adds something. And when, what you end up with is usually much more readable than what you started with. Right. So the inline citations that we're talking about, in case we're talking to people who haven't really read these opinions before, are, you know, you, there'll be a, a, a sentence, there'll be a period, and then there'll be something in italics usually, which is a citation to a case with some numbers and some, you know, uh, right. uh, F.3rd or U.S. period yeah. and all this. And, and Or a statute some, yeah. or a regulation or a you right. know, some other source, but it'll be in line as opposed to dropped into the margin with a footnote. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it'll be in line separated by a bunch of semicolons. So you'll have many sources cited right. in line. Right. And part of the difference in practice among the justices might be related to the aesthetics of the document. It might be related to the importance that you think you convey of the citation. Maybe maybe you have, if you have a certain theory of importance, you put it in line and I don't know, and mm. footnote or something. I, so I can imagine a bunch of different reasons. To me, aesthetics and readability is probably the most important, especially since I don't know, we're dealing with a discipline where citation to authority often, aesthetically may be the wrong word, but seems to convey more weight than the authority really conveys. Right? When you strip the things of the citations, you're left with the bare arguments a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it doesn't seem as impactful is if you have a string citation to like 30 different cases. But if you actually look up those 30 different cases, they're just kind of restating the argument that you're having. You know what I mean? (laughs) So, uh, you know, the the reason that I mentioned Justice Stevens is my understanding was that he, I I think in the contemporary Supreme Court, my impression is there's a real disinclination to use footnotes, which is sort of Russell's point about a, a difference between, you know, the use of footnotes versus inline citations. Judges, he posits, seem to be more inclined to use inline citation. Additionally, my impression of Justice Stevens had always been that he was a footnoter like nobody else. He's I got, mean, that yeah. massive numbers of footnotes. footnotes. Yes. <laughs> um, and with a rich set of citations and a very... So his stuff, per- perhaps more than some of the other justices, looked a lot more law review-ish. Right. Honestly. Somewhat ironic, right? right? And 
Why ironic? Because he was a practitioner, right? Right. He he was. I mean, uh, he, yeah, he was a an accomplished I mean, trust lawyer. And, he didn't come from academia. Right. Yeah, his right. route from the court came from the you you know you might expect from it, it could be completely the opposite. And, it's the yeah, academics or, uh, in the court. I mean, antitrust. Yeah. The academics yeah. in the court would be the big footnoters, and then the practitioners would be the right. the lighter. But that, as you say, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So what was your what's your thought on on what are your recollections about about his did he have a theory about why that was the right way to do it or you know I can't remember ever talking about it but um, not everything went in footnotes so it wasn't just the clean out the text there were certainly so I think there was definitely a, a distinction between things that were so on point and you know we needed to slip this in right in in in, in line um, so that it stood out and the footnotes as I remember them were often sort of side arguments or side mm. points and so okay. we're making this main point drop footnote to say you know you might you might respond to this by saying x well here's the response to x and or you know things like that that weren't just didn't quite go in the main argument but he still wanted to um include but i think um i agree with christian that i i, I personally don't like a lot of citations in the text i think it makes it hard to read i think it's aesthetically messy the flip side to that is the argument that if it's not important enough and this is russell's argument too that it makes you add a lot of citations. And so the argument would be if it's not important enough that you can put it in the text, then you really probably don't need it. It's probably just extra. And I think there's validity to that as well, um, that you, you just kind of, I know I'm, I've been guilty of it. I don't want, I have a part in my law review article that I love and I don't want to take it out, but it really mm-hmm. needs to go. So you put it in a footnote <laughs> and it's just there, you know, you didn't get rid of it when you really should have just cut right. it. Nothing but, is lost. <laughs> but exactly. Exactly. It's like every, every article needs like an after dark article to go with it. Yeah. Right. You, you know, if you're interested in more, check out this other show or, we, yeah. or this other article where we talk about yeah, things right. that didn't fit in the main article. It's like the director's cut. <laughs> you, <laughs> you add stuff back in. But yeah, there there is that. And maybe we talked about this on the show where we that's given rise to this feedback. Right. But they're just different. Writers are different in how they are conveying information. We mentioned David Foster Wallace, like king of footnotes. Yes. Right. Where the 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 footnote aesthetic is very important to the way that his mind is being conveyed to you, right? Because yeah. there's a, the main conversation and then these sidelights, which are going on at the same time. And then there are footnotes to the footnotes, right? It's yeah. a clear aesthetic choice, but also a conceptual choice. And about the use how of interesting typographical design, prose. like he's not only having footnotes to the footnotes, but the right. things he's doing with typography mm-hmm. within the footnotes to the footnotes. And the, I mean, it isn't this, it's like, a, it really is a visual, it's a piece of visual art right. as much as it is anything right. else. Um, and, uh, his masterwork in this regard is that, um, it, it, I think it appeared in the Atlantic. It was called tense present. Mm-hmm. It was a book review of a Garner modern American usage. Edition. We linked that one up before. And, and uh, yeah. it is, uh, it is amazing. This thing is mm. such an amazing accomplishment. <laughs> I loved it. So obviously the choice to use footnotes in a, in a Supreme court opinion is not going to be for the same reasons as the choice to use that, that David Foster Wallace had. Right. But but there is what you say, Sonia, is that, you know, the, one reason is this wouldn't fit in the text. Right. But it's I still think it's important to know. So maybe. But the the other thing you mentioned is, is I'm going to talk to this other justice. Right. right I'm going to say why right. they're wrong. Right. So there's this conversation which is going on at the and same Justice time. Stevens and Justice Scalia did that all the time. Right. They would talk to each other through footnotes. And so frequently. if you didn't want to pay attention to that conversation, which is going on at the same time as the right. main conversation is going on in the hall. Right. You just pay attention to the main conversation. But if you do, you can. You know, it's like I guess it's a little bit like um, sitting in a in an assembly room where some main presentation is going on, but there are also conversations going on among the audience about the thing which is occurring. Mm -hmm. Like maybe that's a part. Maybe footnotes are kind of the the written equivalent to 
multiple conversations going on at the right. same at the same time. I'll give one two counter can't... example about your your idea of exerting the case, and it's so much better once we take all the citations yeah. out. And I have one one exception to that. I totally agree as a general rule, but one a, a, a case I teach, the Hamdi case in, mm-hmm. in constitutional law, and the book I use has exerted out all of the. Uh, citations, basically. So yeah. we have the text of Justice O'Connor's opinion in that case, which is, you know, about the due process rights of this American citizen not to be held right. and detained, you know, indefinitely as a, as a, as a um, enemy combatant, you know, very, very ultimate serious issues. And in the actual opinion, pretty much the only case she cites is Matthews v. Matthew v. Eldridge, which is this procedural due process case about getting like uh, benefits, like health security. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's really telling that this is the one case that she has to rely on. And it's not in the case, and, I, and I, so that's sort of one exception where they I wish put, I wish it were in, in the your case. Excerpt, it's not in there. In, in the excerpt you use, they don't say that the, it's the Matthews v. Eldridge test, which is not really. Surprising. I mean, it's just cited. I mean, if you read the original, it's just cited. This is how we know. This is how we figure out if there's a due process yeah. violation. See Matthews, but that's been taken out just sort of as a matter of course, right? And it's and, hard to convey it, as a teacher. It, it's, as, as when you're reading the original, to me, it jumps out. It's really telling. Right. Like this is all the law that this is based on, and it's a Ill, a ill-fitting law. Look, I don't, um, I don't want to, I don't want to toot my own horn, but let me toot my horn. And Jonathan Freiman's horn because it was our brief in Rasul that cited Matthews against Eldridge as the way to resolve these enemy combatant cases. The reason that case is so important is because the D.C. Circuit had decided earlier in Rasul that the courts were completely closed to uh, people held outside of the United States, right? And just you can't bring any claim at all. So not only do you not have rights, but also uh, even if you did have rights, you wouldn't be able to raise them because the courts are closed. No jurisdiction. Yeah. And they cited this earlier case, Eisentrager, which had said that the courts are cl- – because of reasons, you know, uh, if we recognized rights, we'd have to call commanders back from the battlefield, et cetera, et cetera. And so we cited Matthews against Eldridge as an example of the new technology in due process law, right? Because it's this balancing mm-hmm. test, right? And so right. just because you open the courts and you recognize rights doesn't mean that those rights are going to have sufficient content to require recalling commanders from foreign battlefields. Like you're going to weigh things against mm, one another. Right. And so you need not be afraid like the D.C. Circuit was of recognizing jurisdiction. I figure that that, that would resonate with Kennedy and O'Connor. Um, well, this is an amicus brief, and right. they used it in, in Hamdi. Now, I'm not right. saying it was because of our brief, but that was, it was exactly that idea, right? That this, is, this case is critically important because it is the one which outlines what modern due process is. Right. And it's a good response to the argument that, that Hamdi should have no due process, right? right. No, yes, we give. The, but it's a bad response in terms of the balancing that it introduces and the way it's used, I think, in that case, mm-hmm. where it's like, well, on the one hand, we have the government's need and wanting to make sure they gather up people who might be doing things. And on the other hand, we have Hamdi's interest in his own freedom and liberty and, and just sort of balances them and comes up with this test that gives him very, very minimal process rather than full criminal rights due process. So yeah, we, we it introduces this balancing. We talked about it in the context of Rasul, which was the Guantanamo prisoners case. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the only one that I worked on. And it, they, it was just decided at the same time as Hamdi. And, and I wanted to emphasize in the brief and ended up not making it kind of the extremes, right? The extreme cases. So if there's no jurisdiction at all, meaning that, you know, because due process would invite too much of the kind of camel's nose under the tent that we should just close the courts, then there's really nothing, at least in United States law, which prevent the United States from operating a slave colony on another, on a, on a foreign shore. And that to me was like, whatever else right. our government is constituted for, it's not, that, that's not allowed. Right. On, on the other hand, I also wanted to say that it's possible that recognizing the, the, the ability, jurisdiction doesn't mean that they necessarily have any rights. It may be that you 
look at the Matthews against Eldridge test and you decide that for various reasons, there are no justiciable rights in this case because of the balance is so out of whack. And I think that was important, like, you know, because there was nothing like that back when Eisentrager was decided. It was kind of this on-off switch. And so the very thing that is a danger about a balancing test is the thing that kind of wedges in to show that the court can recognize jurisdiction without going kind of all in on particular kinds of hearings. Right. But, I, you know, how that manifested. But with Hamdi, Hamdi you know, of course, had an American citizen and mm-hmm. it changed all of that. But, but either yeah, way, no, no, I get it. Right. this kind of conversation, it, I think it's interesting to see that that is the case. That is the case that it hinges on. And when that's taken out, you lose something. That was my mere point. <laughs> and, to, but, and to teach it. And I took it all, all, all the way to the merits of the cases for no, <laughs> for no good reason other than that. I always say, you know, I, I can't stop thinking about that case. But, yeah. um, it, the the um, the teaching task or the, the teaching challenge there, right? Because if mm-hmm. you put it, even if you put the site to Matthews back in, mm-hmm. right? Let's say you're editing the case. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, as a rule, I'm going to take out all this. Oh, no, I'm going to put Matthews back in. Because, gosh, it's the only citation here. Mm-hmm. And as a lawyer, I can appreciate this is where you're going to you're going to cite your best case. And if your mm-hmm. best case is Matthews against Eldridge, right. this looks weird. Right. Or it's, it's a testament to what a jurisprudential novelty the opinion may be. Right. Maybe. But of course, to get the student to perceive that you perceive it because you're highly expert. Right. So you're reading the paragraph. You see that as the only citation. and You're like, wow, what that means is X. And you could write a page about what it means, that it's the only thing cited. But the students are going to know that. Right. So if you, you not only have to put the citation back in, you have to drop a footnote. Ah, you have to you have to put something in the case or a note after the case. Mm-hmm. Right. That says, isn't it interesting that this is the only thing or the best right. thing they thought they could point to as authoritative right. or, or meaningful here as an analogy? When you want to convey these things, it takes a lot of you, there's a lot of explaining to do around. Right. You know, the and edges. as we're, as we're talking, I might have to clarify it. It is possible that one citation is in there, but because so many have been taken out, it doesn't. You don't know if it's standing there alone right. because. You know, right. the hundreds of other citations were taken out or it, about. Yeah, not, and if you want to convey accurately, yeah, my, yeah. my point is, right. if you want to convey accurately a sense of what it's like to read it as an expert reader. Right. That's part of the challenge you may be trying to tackle. Right. It may be better to say, you know what, in this context, I can't actually accomplish that without taking students too far off the beaten path that right. they need to be on right now. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just going to get rid of all the citations. But if yeah. you always do that, do you think there's a criticism that students, if they read de-cited de- opinions, de-citationed opinions, that what they lose is the sense that law turns on authority, right? And that authority has some meaning. Now, I'm one who thinks that stripping them away makes plain what the real arguments are, because yeah. I don't think that authority is generally much of an additional argument. I mean, because oftentimes in hard cases, especially the Supreme Court, right, the authorities are pointing in multiple directions. And so the actual decision usually has relatively little to do with authority because either is open. Well, in the, in the teaching materials that I've produced, my inclination is down the middle of the two things that have been described, right? So I don't, I, I don't think it makes sense to leave all the citations in because often some of them are, do seem rather trivial. Uh, they don't add much. But I think taking them all out would be a big mistake, mm-hmm. m- yeah. myself, um, because of the the sense in which c- case law is authority influenced, if yeah, not authority driven. Yeah, I have to go back and look at what. Because sometimes I say citations omitted to indicate that there were some citations here, but they are no longer here. I think sometimes if it's a long string cite, I'll leave in one and then put like a dot 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 dot. 
Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and look. It's, but I think taking them all out as a matter of course would, yeah, that would be a mistake. It would be interesting though, right? Like law without authority, like reasons. These are just reasons, reasons. given. Although some, you know, sometimes it's right in the text that the reason for this decision is precedent. Yeah, and the, and authority is a reason. It's not of the exact same type as other reasons. Yeah, but it is a reason. Well, it, it, yeah, even at the Supreme Court, right? I mean, if you have a sense of stare decisis, you can say the reason I'm doing this is because I don't feel free to make a different decision. If I felt free, maybe I would. The reason I don't feel free is because eight other cases, right? Yeah, uh, so, or even right. one. I mean, if, it, if it's a statutory case, it's a case from a, a term or two or three ago where the court's confronted with this, you know, the enforceability of a particular kind of patent license term that goes beyond the end of the patent. And it was an antitrust case, and it was from decades ago, and it was pilloried from, uh, by many, many people, mo- perhaps most vocally Richard Posner, no surprise there, bringing him back up, um, as a, just a crazy antitrust case, like not sensible as a matter of antitrust policy. And Justice Kagan writes this opinion that says, look, I don't know, sensible, not sensible, it was all fair, all fair, but when we interpret statutes, we almost never overrule our prior interpretations of statutes. Congress can change it any time it likes, and it hasn't. Um, and that's as good a reason as anyone should need. We're sure. leaving the prior case in place. I mean, I think that's a, mm-hmm. a that is a kind of reason. And in the law, it seems like it's an it's an important kind of reason. Whether you think it's meritorious or not, I don't know. But but I think to, to fail to convey to students that that was happening, that that's sometimes maybe one of the strongest arguments they're going to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is you we've already been to this rodeo. We know how it turns out. That would be a real disservice to students. I think. Yeah, just like sure. it would be a disservice to suggest that it was determinative, that authority Indeed. is always determined. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got a couple gun emails. Mm. So listener Patrick writes saying some nice things and then saying that he does, however, want to send along uh, a brief thank you for this week's podcast, which was the one about guns after mm. Orlando. Uh, the debate over gun regulation is, as you noted, very much one based in two cultures that seem intent on defining themselves in opposition to the other. This is the show we call Tug of War in yeah. reference to that. Hence, I think the total lack of any real progress on the discussion of shared goals. As someone with one foot in each world, uh, he has some kind of East Coast law school friends and family members, he says, in the Mountain West. I'm sympathetic to both. I'm also increasingly frustrated that neither are willing to listen to or even recognize the humanity of the other. And the situation seems to be worsening. Perhaps it will pass with the election, but I doubt it. I still don't know how I feel about guns. I own a hunting rifle, which is always kept locked and away from ammunition and trigger locked. But I've also lived in communities that are being torn apart by gun violence. The fact that the victims of gun violence, in my experience, are young people of color and those with mental illness, and that advocates for gun rights are not, is also troubling. Unfortunately, I have no answers, but I did have the opportunity this week to think about this really hard issue without the near constant screaming and belittling from all sides that appends this conversation. I found that space incredibly valuable, and I'm grateful for it. So, And the space or, he was describing is, I think, listening to our episode. Yeah. It was kind of a a pause button on, because right after Orlando, obviously the gun issue right. ignites in a serious way. And there's, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm not a watcher of cable news, but I can only imagine yeah. uh, what, what it was like to, to watch that. I totally agree. And I've actually, I wrote a piece for Slate 
um, talking about this, that there is an enormous problem, as there are with many things in this country, though, as he says, about the two sides just not listening to each other at all and taking such um, rights because such, you know, opposition, because my argument has been that we can absolutely recommend, you know, recognize Second Amendment rights as they have been recognized by Heller. So we'll put aside that it could only be for being part of a militia and, you know, that you have a an individual right to own a firearm, um, at least in your home for self-defense, that there is a certain amount of individual self-defense right that is part of our constitutional structure. But that does not mean on the other side, it does not mean that it can never be regulated and that there can't also be this role for the political process to play in terms of weighing that right against greater community harms and allow regulation as we do with all other constitutional rights. And so I think it's really hard to get people on either side to understand how you can have both beliefs and that they are not necessarily opposed to each other. You either get people I find, like on my Facebook or whatever feed or whatever, that it's either it's only for this antiquated militia idea and otherwise there is no individual right or it's a right to have guns anytime, anywhere, any kind. It's and, that word right, which is so fraught here, right? Because, you know, you said right <laughs> twice, but it, it's that that word right, which, you know, I think you know, I, I experienced it in my feed this week. Like someone says, you know, the Second Amendment right is explicit in the Constitution. They use that word right as if it's the end of an argument. Of course, it's not the end of an argument. It's, it's a conclusory statement, right, about your interpretation of, of a document. And it doesn't even really get at the hard issues. It's like, well... Yeah, I mean, or maybe right is the right word, but people's understanding of what a right is, 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 is flawed, that we have rights to speak, but that doesn't mean everything. And, you know, so we, it, but it's a, it's a concept that a lot of people, I think, have trouble understanding, particularly when it comes to guns. For some and, reason. and a right is something with content. It's a, it's a large, it's a, maybe a category that you use to decide individual cases, but it doesn't automatically decide every individual case before it, because you know, only by adjudicating every potential case could you possibly specify the exact content of a right. And the fact is that we, we can't specify that, right? Sure. So to say that something is a right is only going to be an invitation to a further argument about the right's content. And, and once you do that, the, the question is, are we certain, you know, is saying, is saying that it's a right, is it making any progress at all? Sure, sure. Yeah. And I'm sure you do, too. I get asked questions by students. Uh, they'll explain something and they'll say, does that violate the First Amendment, my First Amendment right? I'm mm-hmm. like, I-, I don't know until a court tells us, you know, whether it does or not, unless we have a case. But in a lot of you're right. We don't know until every single possible. It's a little bit Hofeldian, right, to, to talk about it this way. But that I guess the other thing I push back on is the idea that even if we do accept that Heller is rightly decided, the one thing I will not accept is that it is rightly decided on originalist grounds yes. through the framers. Like, you know, I can accept that maybe there's some historical 14th Amendment reframing notion of personal security that arises out of the Civil War that somehow recasts the Second Amendment. This is kind of a, almost a more Akhil Amar, speaking of the breakfast right. table um, discussion. Yeah, uh, Akhil Amar has said that the right to personal gun ownership should come out of the Ninth. It's mm-hmm. housed in the Ninth, that it's a right that sort of has evolved in our traditions and but not necessarily as an original interpretation of the second. Or it could be, you know, it's the ninth by way of the 14th, that the experience of black people after the Civil War and the need to defend themselves against white people trying to plunder them again uh, and return them to a state of servitude might inform your thinking about the nature of self-defense and the things you might need to effectuate that self-defense. And this is something that's part of the second founding, not the first founding. And so, yeah, you could house it in different places, whatever you might think of the Heller majority's attempt to house it as an original matter in the 1780s. 
whether you think that's persuasive or not, I personally don't um, find that persuasive. But uh, but wherever you house it, I think what you were saying was take Heller as your starting point. There's still a very rich conversation to be had, which you can try to deny in two different directions. No, there's no individual right. There is an individual right, and it and it is subject to no constraint or regulation. Both of those are polar positions that don't advance the conversation. Right. They're rejected explicitly by Heller. I mean, Heller says it is there is an individual right, and it has limits. Right. E- even if Heller hadn't said that, and it ha- and it did, but even if it hadn't, it would be the case that saying, as you guys were just saying, that saying there's a right is the beginning, not the end of the conversation. Right. What are right. the contours of the right? What are the remedies for the violation of that right? That's a very rich, extended conversation with lots of complexity. Always. It is always that. It is never just, I have a right, therefore everyone else has to stop speaking immediately. Because it's not subject to any control. That just none of them work that way. And and I mean, obviously part of this is Heller, but I still feel like we have moved far beyond. No one argues about not having a right to have a handgun in your home for self-defense anymore. Right? That's not the policies that we're talking about, which is what Heller talked about. And and everything else that we talk about, what you know, what type of weapons, I'd be having concealed carry in public, who yeah. can get the guns, what kind of checks and you know, licensing you need to go through to have a gun. None of that is covered by, by Heller. Um, they just aren't mutually exclusive. Right. Heller did not decide any of those cases. Well, like, I, I don't even know. I mean, if it were up to me, there wouldn't be handguns at home. I mean, these are risky behaviors. Right. You know, the evidence is Which you risky. said in the, in, the, in the tug of war episode, what, what was interesting about that thought experiment yeah. or that, that policy consideration of having this form of liability on manufacturers for any death caused by a firearm that they pay into a general fund that can fund all kinds of things. Uh, at six million dollars a life, I think you uh, estimated yeah. it, whatever the current estimate of such that things we is. use for other purposes. Um, yeah. That uh, what's what's interesting about that is it sort of says, you know what? I, like, not only do I not want to have the calm conversation about there is an individual right. Let's start there and then ask what its contours might be. It says, you know, there's a you can actually even sidestep that right and say. That's a whole separate thing. What I want to talk about over here is the consequences. Right. And it, and the consequences of there being a gun industry and there being people who buy those guns and there being people who get killed by those guns raise a set of questions about further consequences and how we might affect those consequences and affect manufacturers' decision making. Um, that's yeah. an interesting way to get even further away from the polarization of, of it's, the, it's a way, like, it's a, almost, you know, more Hayekian way of letting information from all over the place lead to a, a better decision because that's what I admitted to last. I've got, I'm not a, I'm not a gun guy. I don't know how to store a weapon safely. I don't know if it can be done. I just look at the evidence about the increased risk of death from having a gun in the home or even if it's secure, like maybe people can do this safely. I'm sure there are many responsible gun owners who can do this safely. Then there's some, but I don't know the circumstances that everyone thinks they can do it safely. So there's some of those people who are right and some who aren't. And, but I don't know that. Right. So why not let, why not let the market take care of this? No, I, and I think that's a smart, a smart response. The day after Heller came down, I had a conversation with someone which has really affected me and stuck with me all this time. In fact, personally, I might have told you all this story before, but a friend who's a former public defender in D.C. who I just totally, um, you know, just assumed, stereotyped and assumed would be very upset about the Heller decision. And I said something to her and, and her response was she she was very in favor of the Heller decision because her clients in D.C. who were primarily black and lived in very poor high 
high crime neighborhoods felt very much that they needed to have a handgun in their home to protect themselves against all the violence that was going on outside. And, and if they called the police, you know, the police wouldn't come or it would take hours to come. They could not count on the police to protect themselves. They felt they needed this gun and that they would just go ahead and get the gun anyway. And then now this was a thing that that law enforcement was using to charge them uh, mm-hmm. for having this gun that they felt they really needed to have. So it was sort of forcing them into a position of, of law, you know, not being a law abider because they needed this handgun to protect themselves in the home so that it was something that was used in, in this racial way and against the poor, which I just thought was really interesting. And it added another layer of how I, I think about, you know, that basic, basic right and whether Kilomar is right, whether we have as a country grown a tradition that there is some basic right of protecting yourself and your family and your home. I think it's a bad idea. Um, I agree. I don't, you know, want to have a gun or want to have a gun, but whether other people have the right to decide for themselves in their home and their family when that choice is correct, I don't know. I don't know. It's that it's, this is kind of what I push back on though. The, the idea, if there's a right of self-protection, you, you don't advance that right by keeping a gun statistically. And, and, and if it's possible to protect yourself with a gun reliably, then I don't know the sets of behaviors that lead to protection through the guns and the sets of behaviors which lead to increased risk. Because if you, on average, if you want to, if you want to actualize the self-protection in your home, you keep guns out, right? Uh, under current technology. I mean, the, the important, right. uh, an important yes. variable here is making the technology component of the equation dynamic instead of static. That raises the question, what would lead to there being fewer deaths even if you kept the number of firearms constant? Right. Yeah, right. And it would be nice to get people interested in finding out the answer. And one way to get them interested in finding out the answer is make ignorance about the answer very expensive. Costly, right. yeah. Right. Well, this is, a, yeah, I don't want to retread yeah, everything from the last show, but that's the, that, that is the essence of it, right? Because when you say the statistical thing to do is to not have a gun in the home, that's under current technology. Yeah, right. And on it could average, be that, over all gun owners. Right, right? Exactly. correct. So, and yeah, it could yeah. be that with different technology, the answer to that might actually look quite different. Right. The, the truth is we don't know because we haven't put the pressures in place that would move us from where we are to that world. Yeah. Where, a lot, of in, where mean, a lot of time and money and energy and thought has gone into thinking about how to make this as safe as it could possibly be to deliver the benefits it can deliver without the, the hazards that absolutely, it, yeah. the existing technology presents. It could be that it's impossible. Right. right. It could be that uh, there's no way to make firearms such that the sale of them at that at with that technological version can underwrite the number of losses of life right that it turns out that it always generates uh, more death right than uh you can uh than income from sale of firearms etc cetera, etc cetera, right but again we don't know that either because we haven't created the system to try to find out and the point of my story was those statistics if we could know them i'm sure it, it still might always be that they're more dangerous than they help but but the statistics i'm sure look very different for law professors living in athens georgia than it does for people who live right. in you know more urban crime poor right. neighborhoods where there's a lot more violence and we're also crossing over we're, we're Maybe, another yeah. difference is the difference between homicide and suicide I mean, right. a huge number of annual gun deaths are suicides. Suicides, right. And, and that's a whole, I mean, that throws a whole other curveball into this equation. Last I saw was like two thirds. I mean, you know, it's 30,000 a year and I think it's, it's more than half, but maybe around 20,000 or so. It's really a lot. And, yeah, it's but, terrible. But the evidence also is that having a gun, like we mentioned last time, induces suicide, a successful suicide, you know, for whatever reason. I don't, I don't remember if it, what it says about attempts, but you're more likely to have a successful suicide if you've got a gun in the house. And ownership of guns is kind of causing that problem. And they've done studies to try to figure out right. whether, you know, right. anyway. Um, let, let me go to this next 
uh, email, which is also about guns. Mm -hmm. Listener Ed is a gun owner and wanted to give us kind of a gun owner's perspective on these problems This, as someone who is actually interested in solving the problem, right? He doesn't just weigh gun ownership above whatever harms it causes. And he, and he makes a number of points. I just want to kind of go through some of these points. Is that all right? Yeah, sure. that's great. All right. Uh, number one, uh, firearm legislation in the United States must be federally controlled. Having individual states with their own unique firearm legislation prevents one from implementing a single piece of legislation. So – he would like to see preemptive legislation rather. And this, it's interesting in light of our episode with Sarah Light, we just dropped. Yeah. Um, it will be a couple of weeks ago by the time they hear this. But is this an area where you want to allow local experimentation with guns? Right. Guns, as we know, cross state lines rather readily. And anyway. anyway the um, federalism question applied in another scenario. The second point is that magazine capacity limitation is more important than banning firearm types. And he kind of goes into the the standard critique of assault weapons bans is being concerned with cosmetics and and using a term which doesn't really exist because the only thing that makes an assault weapon is, you know, is cosmetic. It's not functional. So if you're, and he's particularly focused on mass shootings, is the only way to stop this is to reduce the capacity of ammunition available in a magazine. To counteract any argument from the NRA, one only needs to look to the migratory bird firearm legislation. It mandates that all firearms, semi-automatic pump or lever action are limited to three rounds. Limiting the capacity to mo- to uh, a moderate five or less would be ideal. Struck me as plausible. Um, I mean, I think the problem, the, the the bigger point it makes is that we need to look to ammunition and not just the firearms themselves when we're thinking about the overall figuring what what the risks are, where the risks come right. from, how you might respond to the risks. And I think having background checks for the purchase of ammunition like why wouldn't you want to talk about that? Sure. Because yeah. if you bought the firearm 10 years ago and you're buying the ammunition today, right? What if things in your life had happened between 10 years ago and today that would bear on whether we think it's a good idea for you to have, you know, five metric tons of ammo? I, mean, I think we'd want to figure that out, right? right. Uh, and, and, this, and his suggestion is, is along the same line. It's saying, think about the ammunition. Well, Sounds th- right to me. This is the next thing. And then it builds on the next. So if you've got more to say, the, the third one is the necessity for the introduction of individual firearm owner liability insurance. If everyone who owned a firearm was legislated to carry liability insurance for each firearm, firearm ownership would decrease dramatically. And that's, I've seen this a lot about like demand insurance, but I think that, and I'm not sure what Ed thinks, but a lot of people I see recommending this aren't, they don't say where they would put the liability, right? Because to get people to buy insurance and to require insurance, they have to be insuring some liability, right? That's, yeah. and, and, the li- and where you put the liability and the amount of liability determines the price of insurance and the interest of the insurer in doing in, in enacting private regulation. So I kind of put this with the last one because magazine capacity seems sensible to me. All these things seem sensible, but if you get the liability question right, it kind of may take care of some of that stuff. Do you have anything to add? Sonia? Yeah, well, just about the magazine capacity. I mean, for all the reasons Joe said, I, I agree with that. It does have the problem, as we were talking about right before that, of sort of focusing more on these, these mass shootings, these high number shootings when the real problems or the more prominent problems, not that that's not a real problem, but, um, you know, are more just one person or two people are, are, are injured. So I don't know how much of an impact it would have on that case, which is a huge, huge, huge right. part of the problem. Yeah. But, if a big part of the problem, if, if suicides account for a very large number of gun deaths annually, then people having a single handgun with a single bullet is bad enough. Right. To cause the problem. Or all the children who, who pick up the guns and all right. of that. So, so you, depending on which thing you think you're addressing, which component of this very, very significant set of interrelated concerns and, and problems. Right. And it could be that with 
the right regulations, you get down to a certain number of deaths because you're never going to eliminate them all. Right. But maybe you get down to the number of deaths where if you just took all the guns, other forms of violence would substitute, right? Because people would use knives to kill each other. I mean, sure. people yeah. are going to find ways to kill each other. Yep. Um, it's just they're not going to find ways as, as convenient as a firearm. Yeah. Or, or they'll right? take a bottle of pills to commit suicide. Right. Or, right. So, yeah. Yeah. There, there, you could draw, and there probably is some, some point, probably right. there is some point where. Well, that, that clearly is the right and efficient number of firearm deaths, right? It's the number of deaths that you would get even if you took away all the firearms. And you don't usually accidentally, you know, stab right. somebody or accidentally take a bunch of pills. <laughs> it so happens seldom, right? It happens seldom. Uh, Although pills is a different, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't accidentally overdose, certainly, but. Yeah. Or kids sometimes eat medicine thinking it's candy or. And then his next suggestions are legislating that certain types of firearms are range only. And then he has a multi-level firearm policy, which is level one or non-restricted firearms. These are hunting weapons and level two are restricted weapons. And these may be pistol, pistols and larger capacity fire. And then level three, which he says is optional, would allow a person to carry a firearm for personal protection. You'd have to go through all the previous levels of checks plus some additional stuff. So the idea is that the weapons become maybe more dangerous. You now have more extensive investigations of your person in order to do it. Sounds reasonable. Oh, I, I, and automatic background checks is another thing that at the federal level, uh, limiting the amount of ammunition an owner is able to have on hand holding. And this is where he gets to kind of what we talked about holding firearm dealers and stores liable if they don't perform the necessary background checks. Uh, it's a little bit like what we suggested. A manufacturer can be held liable if they knowingly sell firearms in excess to any one store or dealer without proper due diligence being conducted. So this is all this is all the stuff I kind of wanted to avoid, right? This like <laughs> you didn't want to avoid it, except in the following respect: which actor is going to come up with these measures and implement these measures? And you can think of them as socially adopted. Socially designed and constructed. Command and control. Right. Or you can think of them as things that gun manufacturers themselves would come up with and implement privately um, once they have the incentive to do so. Yeah, that was the tug of war metaphor, right? By getting, you win that battle once by getting liability in there and suddenly everybody's pulling on the same side of the rope. Because everybody has an incentive to yeah. get rid. Although and, one, and it one may thing be that, the kinds of things that he one talks thing that about suggests there. is that um, having the way you just phrased it is that it will be. I'm not quite sure what the right way to say it is, but but it, you you shouldn't go into that thinking. Oh, it's going to be easier to win once than win these 18 times, because savvy people will realize this battle is worth those 18 battles. It kind right? of is, so, but I'm also thinking that. The kinds of things that that many liberals push for with gun regulations are things that may not actually help. So I'm, I'm actually somewhat skeptical of assault weapon bans. Uh, I'm skeptical of certain kinds of background checks. I'm certainly very skeptical of the terror watch list ban, which seems to me problematic for all kinds of reasons. So what I worry about is grandstanding legislation, which yeah. won't actually kind of put us on a vector toward you know fewer gun deaths. Some of these may be great ideas. Uh, they may not be, uh, this is all coming from, you know, we can look at all these studies and, and, and try to figure out like where the gun deaths are coming from, but it seems to me a very hard problem, even if you know where the gun deaths are coming from, to know what kinds of nudges will actually eliminate those gun deaths. So is this going back to his first point? Is this an argument in favor of taking this to the state level as avoid from the federal level? Could states have the power, you know, assuming we find a state that can release itself from the NRA grip, which our federal government can't seem to do, um, that they could decide to have a state liability system that's similar to what you were talking about, but that the national gun manufacturers would then need to at least start being responsive to that. And if several states 
you know, followed that. Maybe they maybe they would respond in a way that sitting here in Georgia, where we are unlikely to implement that, there would still be an effect. Do you think it could work that way? There's a federal statute which prevents that liability from going on gun manufacturers. And I'll try to link that up. And I'm not I'm not a student of it, so I don't Mm -hmm. know all of its. But this is one. So the one problem you have, right, is that guns easily cross state lines. And so a state which regulates gun sales is going to be subject to another state which doesn't. It, it, even if it's not exactly a race to the bottom, it's a problem. But liability, as you point out, solves that problem. Because right. like any gun death in our state, I don't care where they got the gun. I don't care where it came from. We'll know the manufacturer. If, if we can find out the manufacturer, that manufacturer will be liable. So that mm-hmm. seems exactly like and, the kind of thing right. a state Right. And if you're do. a manufacturer yeah. and there are 10 states that are going to make you pay for the deaths that occur in their states, it might be enough to make you... It's enough of a nudge, yeah. Enough of a nudge to make you rethink how you how you conduct business in some way or how you, you know, whatever it is we want them to change. I, I feel know. like we should get Sarah on the, Sarah Light on the, on the horn again here, <laughs> right? <laughs> Can we talk about precautionary federalism? If there weren't that federal statute standing in the way that had sort of preempted in the opposite direction, you know, California, I mean, it's a huge economy. Right. Yeah, the worry is that that it, that this the liability schemes kind of go in the wrong direction the other way, so that suddenly it becomes about fault. You know, there's a or or it's an individual. No, it would be the same. It would be yeah. it would be the Turner oh, statute, yeah. right? So California right. passes a statute that a says state statute. Yeah, state statute says in the state of California, a gun. This is what happens when there's a gun death. This paint. This yep. bill gets sent to the manufacturer of that firearm. Right. Um, and and if we can't definitively determine the manufacturer of that firearm, maybe there's some alternative. I, I'm in I am in favor of this. I, I, maybe I do you fa- do a market share yeah, in formula or something. Yeah, I favor that. I just if you repeal the statute which prevents it, what I think comes in are a revival of in some big cities these public nuisance suits against guns and and other no, things. No, no, that's right? not no. That's I, not I what I'm saying. I'm saying know, what's the you you have the California statute, and in fact that California state statute says. This statute is exclusive of liabil- personal liability statutes in the cities or whatever. Like, right. rule those out. Say this is a comprehensive California state approach mm-hmm. to this issue. It's this California state regime. We will fund research. So those payments come into the California state uh, firearm death research fund. Or violence prevention fund or, or yeah. whatever. Right. But let's, given how little we know these days, let's make the first wave research. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, that will fund with mm-hmm. the contents of this, uh, and hopefully we it will dwindle, and so we'll fund research in some other way. But just to, just to remind, I, I did hold out the possibility that you could create a separate statute allowing for the payment of compensation to victims that would be payable from the fund. But those would be separate actions. Those would be like actions against the um, against immunizations. Right. This is yeah the vaccine people injured by vaccines. Right. Yeah. Can bring it. But these would be separate from the liability yeah. of the manufacturer. So you disconnect those two. But still, it may be that someone who is an innocent victim of gun violence, whatever that means, whatever definition of it, you could create a separate statute, which sure. is if you're a victim, then you can make a claim on the fund and the claim yeah, will be right. adjudicated in the following sure. way. But I think California is a significant enough economy mm-hmm. that it could be that, let's say it were California, New York, Illinois, maybe that is it, right? Maybe those three because those are three very large economies. So maybe this is the federal statute. Maybe this is if maybe this is the one we should write. We should repeal the other statute, but replace it with the one which still prevents individual liability against gun manufacturers. Maybe this is the compromise position, right? But it says if you want this kind of liability to a fund regime, a state can enact it, but only it. Yeah, sure. Write it up. <laughs> so, I, I encourage our listeners to write it up. <laughs> Solved. Because I think Oregon, Washington, California, 
Right. Um, Massachusetts. I think there are a bunch of states that would do it. Right. And, uh, as we cur- as currently ha- constitute. I mean, California, to use your example, has done this for environmental issues, that they require certain environmental standards, and they're such a big economy, it just affects how people right. do business throughout the country. And, and once again, Sarah Light is an environmental law person. That's yes. why she talks about these precautionary federalism issues. And I imagine the challenges to these statutes being the McCulloch power to tax is the power to destroy and, you know. Because the, the, the scheme basically is, uh, like we called it last time, I don't mean to be flippant, it's a death tax. Manufacturers are taxed for each death. And Yeah, I mean, McCulloch isn't quite on point, but in, in terms of... <laughs> you, think, you think it's not an exact citation? <laughs> um, but the general idea that you can allow private parties to explore the question, which is in, in some sense a question about technology, um, is there a... Is there a, a a way I can produce this item that is sustainable in light of the expenses it's required right. to bear. Right. If we could just have I that mean, argument, that's... if they if they were right. going to say that we will be destroyed if we have to pay for this, let's get let's get gun manufacturers to say that there is no way that we could possibly turn enough profit to cover the harms right. that our product right. causes. And as long as the tax, as you call it, is is you know linked to some generalized accepted compensatory standard. Right. Um, you know, you're not taxing them ten billion dollars for each death, right? right Something yeah. that comes. Yeah. Like, you know, no, personal injury in wrongful death right. actions. This we seems have to be the yeah. standard for. Then it'd be hard to say it's anything more than just having them pay right. for their harm. Yeah, yeah, I suggested the kind of administrative law, you know, right. value of a statistical life kind of right. thing, and yeah. it seems to be you know between four and ten million dollars. Last time I looked, usually but, about yeah. six million dollars. In that case, the power to tax is only the power to destroy. If it's something horrible. If they can't, right. <laughs> that is causing so much harm. Right. Should we um, say? Uh, uh, a Are we going to say anything about the breakfast table? Because it's, <laughs> we've been we've been at this for a while already. We've yeah, but I'm so come, much I'm of our most of this out. So we're only tw- we're only twenty minutes in. <laughs> <laughs> we're only twenty minutes in. I think in episode three hundred and nine, um, that's just going to be damned annoying. When yeah. You do that. I feel like I've been scattered today. I feel like my thoughts have been scattered. I haven't been able to gather them together. I'm, I'm just No more so than usual. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Maybe I'm just more... Maybe today I'm actually having a moment of clarity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm recognizing... It's all making sense. <laughs> right. Usually I'm operating under the illusion that I'm making some kind of sense. <laughs> having a guest here has made it has made the um, the clouds it's, lift and mm. allowed me to see myself for who I really am. So and you're blaming me. It's uh, frustrating. <laughs> no, I'm giving, I'm giving, I think he's thanking you. I'm giving you. you the credit for allowing me to see the... For, well, the, whether he's thanking you or not, I think. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's just let's just say a couple words about that. I, I, I kind of thought we could talk about the Supreme, but we'll we'll have to have a separate Supreme Court roundup show. We have an annual tradition of rounding up the entire Supreme Court term by talking about one case. <laughs> <laughs> this is true, right, Joe? We've done it before. We've done it before, and we will yes. do it again. Uh, and and. and it could even be about that denial of cert in the pharmacist case. That would take it to a new level where yeah. we talk about the entire okay. term with Based the denial, denial of review. Cert. I think we should do that. <laughs> this is what, what was the name of this case? We can't do it because Mark Graber has already done the most devastating comment you could make about uh, the the this d- descent from the denial of review in the I can't remember the name. It's a Washington state case about pharmacists stocking plan B. Um, and, uh, and the state has a requirement that you carry same. medications that the market right. demands unless you, or something unless like you that. meet certain requirements, right. Stormans, I think, Stormans. Yeah. 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 unless you meet, unless there are certain things that happen. Like, but there's know, a Mark Graber post on, um, balkanization, um, today, mm-hmm. um, uh, holding up 
Justice Alito's dissent from review in uh, dissent from the denial of review in this pharmacy case, and the dissents in the Whole Women's Health um, Texas uh, trap laws case, and just sort of like you read it and you're like your jaw drops to the floor because it's so devastating a critique of the inconsistency between these two approaches. A theme in our in our annual review shows has been this kind of individual ability to opt out of general regulation, right? It, I think we talked about Hobby Lobby way back when. Yeah. And when we're, uh, I'd like to return to this. We're not well, going to get it done It seems to be today, a question but... of our age. I mean, it does seem to be the thing. The that's... complicity kind hmm? of argument, the complicity argument of when you have a right not to be complicit in somebody else's. Act. Yeah, that's one, yeah. Of the, one of the manifestations of it, right. one facet of this. And it's, um, so partly it's the, it's a, it, the, the expanding notions of equality and equal treatment uh, induce some people to say, wait a minute, I don't, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not on board for that notion of equality. <laughs> Can you let me continue to, be, to do the things I want to do? Yeah, the way I um, thought about it is that this is an equal protection clause for reasons analysis, right? That religious reasons have to be treated equally to any secular reasons, right. which is, uh, let's just say, tough tough to swallow but but let's all right so that's something we should talk about it it certainly raises interesting questions about the upshot of the english civil war and i'm referring of course to the one in the 1680s of course i I had no doubt (laughs) is there anyone it could have been referring to other than that one joe well Well, the brexit there might be a new one but uh, yeah we do not have time for for brexit right now Five minutes. Do we have time for Axit, the have, Athens, oh boy. the Athens version of Brexit? Haul Ath. Haul Ath. Yes. We need to haul Ath out of here. My, my, sure. my favorite barista is leaving town, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I've constant. I've hounded on her about how she's basically Brexiting. Mm. <laughs> I've, I've put her name together in a portmanteau with Exit, and uh, <laughs> she's not a fan. She's not a fan of the portmanteau. Yeah. Yeah. She just leaves. That's what she does now. That's what I told her. (laughs) Um, Let's talk for five minutes about Judge Posner. Okay. And his attack on legal academia. Is that okay with you guys? Yes. Um, This is, again, this is only 20 minutes into the show. Well, you're looking at me with that evil eye. Yeah. Mm. Uh, So you want to summarize this attack? Who wants to... You want me to do it? Yes, please. Because yeah. I'm having trouble getting the word. You know, I'm now seeing myself in a new light as someone who cannot get the words out and cannot make <laughs> any sense. Um, basically, the the charge is that legal academics don't make much of an impact. We don't make much of a difference. And if you say that we have, and I think Akhil Amar responded that his research into the Fourth Amendment has had some influence, or he's at least cited Posner before, and so Posner seems to have believed that legal academics could have some influence. I'm... I don't know if I make any sense, but um, uh, Posner says, show me the evidence, right? That, you know, where is the measurable difference in the law that has occurred because of legal academic ideas? And this is of a piece with his criticism of the the kind of the methods, the methodologies and the content of what law professors do. On the one hand, like historical study of the Constitution, does that really make a measurable difference? Yeah, it makes a difference in the kinds of arguments people make, but does it make a difference in the outcomes of any cases? Posner is very skeptical of that. He's also skeptical of the amount of time wasted on things like the blue book and the kind of the, not the aesthetics of it, but the methodologies of producing legal scholarship. And so the general critique has been, I'm not sure there's any measurable impact created by law professors outside their teaching. And is that consistent with what you guys took out of it? I mean, I'm maybe being unfair in, in summarizing too much. Well, I don't think he was as temperate as you just were. I mean, I think he was launching more of a broadside and it's, you know, 
course, it is on Slate. It's short. It's not meant to be a book. He's written a book recently about the, I think it was called something like Divergent Paths or something like that. And he's been talking about this disconnect between the legal academy and the bench and the bar and all this stuff for a while. Um, and he himself has, he's a judge. He also does some teaching at the University of Chicago, or at least has uh, in the past. I think he still does. Um, so, so he's got, and, and he certainly consumes tons of academic output himself. I mean, in the books he writes, he seems to reference lots of research, maybe not legal academics, maybe it's just sociologists or psychologists or whatever, but he's economists. He seems to consume a lot of university produced research. Um, uh, and it seems to affect his thinking, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think you, I think you summarize the point. I don't, uh, I'm not quite sure what, what he's trying to do. Like what, why does he think it's good to try to send the legal academy into a shame spiral every few months. I'm not sure what he's trying to, what, what he thinks he's accomplishing there um, or why he thinks that's worth doing. Other than maybe he just thinks it's worth saying, you know, saying a hard truth, but. Um, yeah. I read it and felt like yawn. This is nothing new, right? We've always been the legal world's punching bag of, Oh, you do everything you do is, is worthless. And, you know, Justice Roberts has done it. Justice Scalia loved to talk about, you know, the, the silly, ridiculous classes that are offered and the things that law professors, legal academia um, does. And, and it's just like so many things. It's just, there's a, there's an element of truth. Could we better serve by having, you know, at least a segment of our faculty who have more practical experience, who are able to, you know, write about and, and convey to our students, um, you know, some things that perhaps, you know, are, are more about day-to-day bankruptcy law or things that maybe we, we well, others of us are off doing constitutional law, which is of the of the punching bag constitutional <laughs> law, we are the punching bags punching bag, right? About the most worthless things. But to say that it's not hasn't been no measurable impact, I think, is just ridiculous. They're they're recited all the times we can find, you know, um, you know, where places where uh, an academic's thought has led to, you know, large I think large movements. I mean, the, the entire attack on Obamacare was pretty much crafted by legal academics and 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 you know the co- the court recently just even on a smaller scale changed some of its practices about um how it deals with cases and changes in cases based solely because of of law review articles and you know those are just a couple small examples but I, I think it seems silly to me to think that there's no no link and then also a lot of what we do or some of us try to do isn't designed to have an impact tomorrow the idea is to add a drop of legal thinking to a conversation that's continuing and hopefully you know in a decade will lead somewhere um pr- pr- you know productive which is why we hope that governments will continue to support the need to have this kind of thing. But mostly I felt like, oh, this again, here we are. I'm already bruised here and there. And you're just punching <laughs> me again. But I'm torn because I agree with him and disagree with him, you know, because I think that it is often the case that stuff that is written, um, even if it's cited, didn't actually make the difference, right? There, there's stuff which is addressed to a particular kind of legal problem. And it sounds in a, in, in a register of legal change, it is you know, draped in legal rhetoric. It's a mixture of authority and theory and framing and, and, and it's used, right? It's deployed in a, in a decision. But the question is, would that decision have been different, but for that piece of writing, or does the writing come from the same place that the, that the desire to change the doctrine comes from? In other words, they both have the same source. And so the writing was basically surplusage, right? The reason that the person wrote the law review article is the same reason the judge is going to go in a different direction. 
and now the writing is available, right? So in other words, is legal change due to some underlying social forces that are perhaps reflected in some legal scholarship, but not caused by it? Is that knowable? How would we know? Well, this... Because <laughs> we, we can't run a, an alternate universe where the judge is sitting there, but the article doesn't exist. I, look, I... Because part of, yeah. what, part of what that judge who's, who's leaning that way thinks when he or she sees the article is, oh, I'm not alone. Yeah. But mm-hmm. This is actually a reasonable thing to think, and here's yeah. a reasonable articulation of this reasonable thing to think, and I'm reassured by that, so I'm going to go reach the conclusion that I was sort of leaning toward, but... But that I don't know that I would have reached in the absence. We just don't know, right? We don't know. I have a hunch. And, and we can't yeah. know. I have a hunch in th- that there are cases, and, and maybe even many cases, where the there is a law review citation, but it really wouldn't have made a difference. I have a hunch that's true in in yeah. in some cases, and, and again, maybe many, maybe even most. I think the dominant mechanism for legal change is through our students, but that writing affects that, right? Writing, yeah. our writing and scholarship kind of constitute the way that we teach our students. And so over the long run, students come out differently because of the schools of thought pursued by law professors and other disciplines which bear on the law, right? They, they just are constituted by their experience. And that's not just a function of, the, of where society is at that point. It's the function of the intellectual environment. I think you see this with legal realism. You see it with law and economics, right? The reason yeah. briefs don't look the same today uh, as they did before um, Coase, Calabresi, Posner, right, really pushed out law and economics is because of those schools of thought. Is yep. it because of the the uh, problem of social cost, uh, economic analysis of law, and the uh, and the cost of accidents? Is it because of those writings? Uh, uh, indirectly, I think it's because a lot of students graduated from uh, schools where all the professors had consumed these things and are talking and becomes part of the way they are thinking about right. law. It's yep. part of how to read a case. It's part of how to, you know, what's wrong with the way this judge ruled in this case? They didn't take account of like the right. externalities, if you like, or the, 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 the so lack the of- So the judicial output yeah. differs. The, bre- the, the, the writing that advocates do starts to differ. The counseling letters to clients start to differ. Sure. Um, the agency analyses and rulemaking start to differ. Um, it all starts to change. And, because, and, because, yeah. and it's woven into the fact that you've got, as part of that ecosystem of co- continual churning and change, part of it is professors articulating some ideas that turn out to be, when they're exposed to all that hurly-burly, turn out to be interesting and useful and important to people. And I think one thing that's getting left out here, too, is, you know, academic, legal academic work is in, you know, ideally a debate. It's a debate right out there. Right. So, so yes, you're a judge and somebody writes Article A and uh, you could say, oh, that completely confirms something I wanted to rule on anyway. I could cite Article A and you could. But if there are 20 more articles that are pointing out all the flaws with Article A, it would make it more difficult for you to do that. And, and, mm. and so and, 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 you know, and, and so if we do it right we're 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 hashing our way through all of this in a way that should help the judges and should help them you know in some way both learn things but also make it harder for them to make a flawed idea if it's been really thought through by a lot of people who spend their time thinking about this one idea and i mean, i think by the same terms that gets passed on to students as well if we've read 20 articles debating something um you know the thoughts we've learned from that i'm sure get conveyed to our students whether we mean to or not yeah and it shows that and, and it may just be this piece, and I've not read the the more extensive treatment that he gives of this, although I've listened to a podcast he did at Chicago about some of what he thinks judges and lawyers and uh, law professors should be interested in. It's almost like there's too singular view of what the academy is, because there is a 
type of scholarship, which are kind of like super briefs, so the briefs that private industry couldn't possibly pay for or wouldn't pay for, that a law professor steps in and produces, right? Some law review articles are basically like, you know, I are basically super briefs. And you get enough of these together and suddenly you've got a conversation occurring that can be drawn on in exactly the way that you described, Sonia. Some articles are, you could probably, I think he could rightly criticize not only is not productive, but maybe counterproductive and from various points of view, right? That, that it is, it looks like it's analytical, but in fact is just rhetoric and it's just adding noise to the system. I mean, I'm sure that's out there. I'm not going to point any fingers. I don't mean to, I don't, you know, I wouldn't even know. Maybe we can't even identify such things until uh, well down the road. I don't know. But then there are other articles which are more like basic research kinds of things. I was just reading a, a really nice article by Brian Tamanaha today about the nature of law, which is, I think, really, really good. And like, no one's going to cite that for a particular outcome in a, in a case, right? But that article, combined with some others, is going to affect ideas. And, and, you know, when I read a piece like this, it affects how I teach, right? And it happens to, to fit in well with a lot of stuff I'm thinking about lately. But the way that we teach does change the expectations of our students. So I think that's another way. There, there are multiple routes through which the teacher influences the next generation's use of law. And one right. of them is by saying things directly, and another is just by the absorbing kind of what's in the air intellectually. And given how, given how smart he is, given his own role in economic analysis of law as both an intellectual movement and a lived practice in the real world today, for jurists, for private lawyers, etc., given the extent to which he himself both consumes and produces scholarly analysis of stuff, there's part of me that thinks he can't possibly believe what he's saying, right? There, well, one it's, reason, it's, he, yeah. it's, it is so strikingly illiberal in the classical sense, <laughs> yeah. his assertion, is basically, you know, I don't know how far you want to set the clock back, the Enlightenment, maybe, but everyone <laughs> just you know put down your quills. It's all a big waste of time. Right. Let, let me. Not, he can't possibly mean that. Let, right. let me not speak for him, but let me speak for him. Uh, <laughs> you know that he he's one who believes in the efficiency of the common law, right? And he has this mechanism that he thinks causes the common law to be efficient. It's selection bias of what's litigated based on what's efficient. So there may be mechanisms by which judges reach pragmatic, efficient decisions over time that are irrespective of the theories, right? And, and so it doesn't really matter what law professors say should happen. Uh, litigation will work itself free of the theory, kind of like we talked about with the, in the T3 Jedi episode, right? That the idea of what's acceptable in society, what makes sense, is ultimately going to be expressed in the cases. And that that is something to which law professors don't contribute in any meaningful but this way. But this has this argument. But that, you know, I disagree that, with it because I just articulated a way. But, I, well, but, yeah. so, so the, but the contention that this is all epiphenomenal is a little bit like how do we all how do we how can we refute the idea that we're all brains in a vat or maybe more particularly that I am a brain in a vat and all you all are the vat. Right. Ooh, um, you that's I, you can't gross. you can't get behind <laughs> that. You can't get under it or behind it or or. Not. And so at that point, it's sort of like, OK, you're right. Um, and if we were both a little bit drunk in a dorm room, this would be more entertaining. But given that neither of us are, um, I'm not sure what what is what is gained Speak by bringing yourself, up the notion, <laughs> <laughs> bringing up the notion that that um, this could all be epiphenomenal. It could all be surplus. Right. It could all just be yammering and talk that doesn't really do have anything to do with the substance of oh the decisions we'll arrive at will be the good ones over time and all this other stuff is just a bunch of jibber jabber 
maybe. And I think you're right, Joe, that at some point, if you continue this train of thought, it applies to all type forms of academia, not just legal, right? All sort of forms of search for knowledge of, you know, are, but aren't we going to do what we're going to do anyway? And I, yeah. I don't know. It's hard to draw the line of. Won't someone stumble into that pharmaceutical composition? I mean, all this stuff, all this talk at yeah. the at university chemistry departments about this reaction and that reaction. It's a bunch of jibber jabber. <laughs> <laughs> really? Well, that's, <laughs> but I, the, 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 the critical difference there is that in science, although there are paradigm changes and, and now there are even criticisms of the whole method of paradigm, but there is a state, there is a more stable theory of truth. And, and whereas law is a dialectic and there is sure. not an agreed upon theory of truth. And that is the fundamental mechanism I think that he would cite as what, what makes for an academic branch of law that is unable to contribute meaningfully to law's ultimate expression in the cases. But still, I mean, you're the mathematician. I mean, couldn't you apply this to math of people putting out theories about math or taking us to a new place in math that I don't know. Maybe math's a bad example. History is certainly one. <laughs> math is a bad example because there's an agreed upon theory there's of truth in math. Theory, but basic, I mean, you know, at the but surely there thing, must yeah. be some way we are inching our way forward in our knowledge of math that involves, you know, an academic kind of theorizing that's not necessarily. Well, there's, quite kind of, as... there's a kind of teleo- teleology with math and the sciences where you can say that we know more today than we did yesterday. Sure. Right. And and I think my readings of some of his, and I'm not familiar with all of it, is that there is a way to think that we could know more about law than we did yesterday, but it has to do with empirical, practical findings about reality. Whereas conceptual pieces or pieces about rights or that doesn't, that doesn't advance our state of knowledge. It just enhances the amount of talk. I think that's what he would say, right? Because there isn't a theory of truth which says, ah, because you've made this argument about, you know, whether, again, whether like the the flexible due process doctrine is the right one to apply in the Hamdi case, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can make an argument about that, but there's not a theory of truth which says that is the right doctrine sure. to apply or not. You can just okay. make a rhetorical but argument. Philosophy about it. or even history. I yeah. mean, at some point, you know, we're right. we're learning more and more and more about our history. But at the other side, it's it's a biased form. We're learning. It's a flawed version of history. We're learning. We'll never know mm-hmm. when we truly know the truth <laughs> right. of history, right? It's it, you know. For but, philosophy, he does think that he does think academic moral philosophy is useless. More or less. Well, well it's consistent. I don't know. Maybe it's a, it's maybe I'm, I'm sort of a bodlerizing uh, Stephen Pinker sort of idea that maybe, maybe it's not a theory of truth. Maybe it's a theory of peace. Like it does seem that over an, a, a, a large, take a, a, a thousand years of human history or two, um, I, we do seem to be bashing each other to death in the head with rocks less, like per capita. Yeah. <laughs> Um, maybe that like, so maybe it's not a theory of truth. Maybe it's just a theory of getting along with each other for longer stretches of time without killing each other. Yep. And Mm -hmm. if, and if life is fun to live and it seems to be fun to live for lots of folks for lots of periods of time, um, now, uh, and more people all the time, like, isn't that maybe it's a, maybe it's a Peter Singer, maybe it's a Steven Pinker, but there's sort of a, a, a sort of, a there's an idea of, the talk is actually part of making life better. It, it's too easy to dismiss as just talk, mm-hmm. right? Well, what if talk turns out to be the thing that is keeping us alive and instead what if you, of what having if us kill each uh, other? <laughs> what if you can't measure that, right? I mean, if you can't measure it, I would think that, uh, I would, I would think that kind of a, just a Burkean conservatism would say, well, let's keep talking because this seems to be working. Yeah, I mean, it's better than fistfights. Right. Isn't it? In a way, you're almost saying, like, are we better because we have law? Do we need this law stuff? Do we need these judges? Yeah, I mean, where are we going to figure it all out? We're going to have yeah. you back when I'm finally ready to talk about my paper because uh, <laughs> <laughs> because you can't get rid of law. Well, she's yeah. she's she's welcome back 
on all episodes because she's a co-host. <laughs> so you yeah. say we'll have you back. Well, right. We expect you here. <laughs> uh, I, I hope for too much, though. I know that Sonia oftentimes says we should remark on each one of her absences. <laughs> oh, no. Just, oh Sonia's not okay, here today. I probably that's, won't listen. That's so. a little un- <laughs> oh, oh, deep cut. I was going to say that's a little unfriendly. I retract it. I retract my planned statement. I think we're done. You think we're done? I think we're done. Any any messages for the listeners? Sonia, do you have any final messages? Good times. Fun. Good times. Good times. Better than a fist fight. (laughs) Put that on the back of our our podcast book. Oral argument, better than a fist, fist fight, fight, raves Joe Miller. Yeah. Well, let, now, now, maybe I want to modify it. Better than most fist fights. <laughs> when, when, my, when my kids were younger and they had their friends over, this is how they knew they were in a weird house because I would we'd finish dinner and say, hey, guys, it's family fist fight night. <laughs> <laughs> and my kids would roll their eyes and the other kids would be like, what's going on with your family? Yeah. Right. Turner Fight Club. That's the kind of show and family that we run around here. Yes. So, yeah. It's in the, in, the, in the Queensbury household. Oh, boy. This is you put after dinner, you put on the gloves. It's the only way we're going to come up with the boxing rules, my friend. Trial and error.